Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello, everybody. Ben Jarofsky here. And with me in the studio is David Ferris. He's a Roosevelt University political science professor, uh, the author of It's Time to Fight Dirty, How Democrats Can Build a Lasting Majority in American Politics. And for over a year, I've been having David Ferris come on my talk show, uh, be it uh, on the podcast talk show or the old talk show, because I think he's a strategist that the Democratic Party should be listening to. And David... If I'm advocating for you, that generally means that you're the last person in the world that the Democratic Party will listen to. Uh, so anyway, welcome to the bonus hour. Hey, thanks for having me on the show again. It is like day 860 of our governance by a bunch of uh, vindictive uh, slimeball grifters. So we have a lot to talk about. <laughs> okay, I like that. That'll be the title of your next book. Coming Govern- strong. <laughs> <laughs> governance by slimeball grifters. Um, all right, David Ferris, uh, let's 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 try something a little different here. I'm going to give you the um, the big issues of the day as we speak. It is I forget what day it is. Tuesday, but as people are here, this will be about five days out. Uh, but these issues will still be around in five days. So I want you to talk a little bit about the issues themselves, the pros and cons, if you will, if you could just imagine yourself removed from the politics, and then the politics of the issue and how they'll play out um, in the upcoming elections. So I got three general car- categories. We'll start with tariffs. As we speak, there is a trade war uh, brewing between the United States and China, uh, instigated this is my view by President Trump. Not sure why he's instigating it, but uh, talk about the issue of tariffs in the abstract, uh, it, whether it's good or bad or uh, neutral for um, the American people. Sure. Um, it's a great question. I'm, I'm going to disappoint you by saying there's not a clear answer to that. Um, you know, tariffs are, are an economic instrument that you would generally use um, as part of a deliberate, well thought out strategy to protect domestic industries from competition overseas, right? So um, in, in political science, we have this, uh, the concept is called import substitution industrialization, right? And that means that you, uh, you tax the hell out of something coming from another country so that you shelter your own industry so that it can grow. Um, and so, you know, if you don't, if you open up competition um, and somebody else is producing that good more cheaply, then, then your, your industry may disappear. Um, you know, it may be priced out of competition. It may move its manufacturing somewhere else. And so I think that this whole um, trade war with China is produced by um, the, the president's belief uh, that our trade relationship with China is unfair, you know, that, um, that we buy more from them than they buy from us, um, and that many, you know, many manufacturing industries that could be located here in the United States have moved to China because the because the labor is cheaper there, um, and the you know the sort of labor practices are more lax, um, and so you know it's 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 playing into what I think is a pretty widespread belief that free trade, as it's been practiced over the last thirty years, has been damaging to certain sectors of the American economy. Mm-hmm. Um, and if I were like a U Chicago economist, <laughs> which I'm not, what a thought! <laughs> I, uh, I want to be able to sleep tonight, so I'm not. And uh, you know the U Chicago economist would come in and say like, look. 
Um, sure, free trade does damage to certain industries, but overall, you know, the, the American consumer, by the way, I hate that word consumer, but whatever, the American consumer benefits um, because, you know, the prices of goods overall go down, even if certain specific sectors or specific parts of the country may sustain some damage from those practices. So the, the president is gambling that the politics here are in, are in his favor. Um, overall, you know, mm -hmm. broadly speaking, that Americans believe that China is unfairly exploiting us, um, and that if we get tougher, we can get a better deal with them, um, maybe revive some American industries, or you know, make it easier for American steel or American auto manufacturers to to export their their cars to, to China, um, and then we'd have you know we wouldn't have a trade deficit. Right? That's his goal, mm -hmm. um, and that's you know, I mean, on one level, a misunderstanding of of how international trade works, right? Like just because. We buy more from China than China buys from us doesn't necessarily mean that 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 that's a negative relationship overall. Um, if there are other countries with whom we have a trade surplus, right? Um, it doesn't. It, you don't have to have. If you if we have a surplus with every single country, right? Then then they're going to start regarding us as unfair. Mm -hmm. So the the sort of the post World War II economic order was built on the idea that free trade is overall beneficial to human civilization, that it reduces conflict. Um, that it makes things available to people they wouldn't otherwise have access to, um, and that tariffs, in addition to starting sort of economic mayhem, um, can can lead to actual physical conflict um, because countries will feel you know that they have to to do certain things to protect their industries. Um, you know, I think the theory was that World War II was in part produced by, at least on the Japanese side, by um, you know they you know, they needed oil, right, mm -hmm. and they they felt like they needed to, to like conquer the places that had the oil. Rather than buying it, right? Um, I guess they thought it was ultimately cheaper. Although it was a miscalculation. That on was their a miscalculation, yeah. definitely uh, on the part of the Japanese there. So, you know, that's I mean, that's the overall issue, right? I mean, you slap a tariff on something. Um, you know, you you know, if you slap a tariff on Chinese cars, um, what, what is the, what is the Chinese car called? Uh, is it Kia or no? Kia is is uh, is Korean. Um, yeah, Kia is Korean. There's some, there's some the Chinese, Chinese car manufacturer yeah. that's, that started to get into our market. And so the idea is like you slap a tariff on, on Chinese cars and then people will buy Fords instead of buying the Chinese car. Yeah. Um, which it's, is true, right? That's like how it would work. Um, the, the real question is like in the, in the aggregate, whether our economy will suffer from being prevented uh, from having access to all of these goods that are produced cheaply in China and then shipped here. Okay. Um, so we may end up paying you know, like Ford may succeed in, in keeping one of its plants open in Toledo, Ohio, but the rest of us are going to pay, you know, $20 for that T-shirt instead of $10. Or we're going to pay $1,200 for the iPhone instead of $1,000. Yeah. Um, and it's and it's politically, uh, in some ways, it, it makes sense politically because people may not notice, you know, whether their T-shirt prices fluctuate by a dollar or $2, but, um, but people in particular key swing states certainly have noticed the disappearance of their industries um, as a result of, you know, 30 or 40 years of American industrial policy. Well, and, and uh, traditionally, or at least in the last uh, 20 years of tradition, uh, the issue of free trade has been a populist issue and has played well with the Democratic Party. Uh, there's still people who are upset about the NAFTA agreement that Bill Clinton signed uh, uh, with Mexico in the 90s. Mm -hmm. uh, and there's still people who are upset about the Pacific Trade Agreement that Barack Obama signed 
uh, or negotiated, I think it was about five years ago. That's traditionally on the Democratic side of things. It's usually the Republicans who are championing free trade because they're the University of Chicago economic <laughs> economist types that you were just alluding to. So Trump is sort of doing jujitsu here. He's taking a Democratic issue. Uh, you know, and and employing it and getting Republicans to support it. I get the feeling that politically, whether putting aside the pros and cons of of the issue, uh, David, I get the feeling politically that Democrats and Republicans don't quite know how to react to this. Yeah, I don't think they do. I mean, I think it's because both parties are are split on trade. Um, they like they each have this populist wing that is opposed to to NAFTA or as opposed to to TPP, um, and they both have this. You know what 10 years ago was i think the consensus in the american political class which is that these things are good we should give the president greater authority to negotiate trade agreements and then we should fast track them um and so that that really changed in the 2016 election when both bernie sanders and president trump you know r- ran their campaigns uh, on a platform of, of reversing some of these um some of the uh, reversing or modifying or, or, or significantly renegotiating some of these trade agreements um, and so it's an issue that, that um, doesn't have clear sort of partisan splits on it. And so it's complicated. Um, I do think public opinion is, is broadly supportive of the idea um, that we need, you know, we need better trade agreements with China. So I think that the president is on fairly firm political ground in demanding that we renegotiate these things. The, the real question is, like, does he have a plan? Does he know what he's doing? Um, and is is what he wants to get from China possible to get from China? Because one of the big things they want is like uh, is, is changes to domestic Chinese law about things like um, intellectual property. Um, because w- one of the places where we lose the most money, you know, we as America lose the most money is um, is ideas. Mm-hmm. You know, um, that the China you know, the Chinese firms are maybe not paying American companies for for using certain technologies or, or films or whatever it is. And I, you know, I just don't know that that's, I don't know that's possible. I mean, and you can also sign an agreement that says they're going to change their practices, but this is an authoritarian country and they can kind of do whatever they want, right? There's, there's, they don't have anyone to answer to domestically. Um, and they also may be just waiting us out to see whether Trump is defeated next year. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, I think that explains some of the volatility in markets that you're seeing because I mean, I'm not an economist here, but I mean, investors are clearly looking at this and saying, But they're looking for predictability and they can't figure it out. Do I want to go long on Boeing when I don't even know if Boeing is going to be able to sell to China in two weeks? When you introduce tariffs, not just tariffs, but when you introduce the threat of sort of further escalation of this conflict, um, you know, it makes people jittery. It makes them not want to to invest in certain firms that have business in China or that depend on their business with China. Um, And it's really hurting some American farmers. in the, in the Midwest in particular. Well, we were, I was going to get into that. The headline in today's Tribune uh, says it all. Trump, colon, farmer bailout coming. So this is uh, this is a result of, of a trade war. Uh, the um, uh, Farmers are worried that the Chinese will retaliate to the tariffs that uh, the ta- tariffs are taxes. The taxes that uh, Donald Trump, so ironic, Republicans taxing things. I find it interesting <laughs> that they will tax goods coming in from foreign countries in order to help certain industries ostensibly but they won't 
tax rich people in Illinois to help uh, pay for education. It's really interesting how they use taxation uh, as a device, David. Uh, anyway, so Trump, uh, farmer bailout coming. And so uh, re- as retaliation to the taxes that Trump's slapping on China for the goods it when it, the goods it's bringing in, China will retaliate by slapping a tax on the goods that America uh, exports, including uh, agricultural products. And so farmers are suddenly worried they're going to lose their market. Trump is telling them, don't worry. Whatever you lose in sales to China, I'll compensate by just <laughs> digging. They always got like a billion dollars, trillions of dollars, David Ferris. They could just dig in and, yeah. you know, they got no money for anything, but they're going to pay farmers. Yeah, and I'm sure nothing makes farming more rewarding than having a silo full of unsold soybeans and then getting a direct payment from the American government to not sell them. Um, it kind of defeats know, the whole point of what the, the what would my economist friends from the University of Chicago say about that <laughs> if they ever had any guts and dared to speak up against the Republicans who lead this country? Uh, so when you see this, how do you feel the public will respond to this? I mean, a bailout to uh, uh, compensate for the losses that the trade policy of Trump uh, that, that Trump is creating with his trade policy, we're paying more. More money in tax dollars for it. How do you think the public's going to respond to this? I don't think this is a winning strategy for Trump. I mean, I think for for many farmers, the damage is already done. Um, you know, they've either they've either lost their farms or they're deep in the debt, um, and they can't plan moving forward for you know the next two or three harvests if they don't know whether we have these agreements in place, and then they have to depend on the American government <laughs> to deliver for them. Um, it's not just that, but it's like who you know who trusts Trump to follow through on anything. Yeah, you know, that's he's true. Like, oh, don't worry, I'll pay you. Right? Like <laughs> famous last words. Uh, if you depend on Donald J. Trump yeah. for your business, right? <laughs> A lot of suppliers uh, of Trump construction projects are still waiting. Don't worry, farmers. He's going to treat you better than he treated the plumbers who uh, built uh, Trump Tower. Right, right. He's going to just going to say to them like, "I decided not to pay you," and like, oh, that makes me smart. You know, yeah. like, um, that is correct. I, I just don't think it's. I don't think it works. I mean, what it looks like is. Um, you have a lack of vision and leadership at the executive level, and they're they're having to spend American resources to bear out bail out American farmers when everything was perfectly fine before, mm-hmm. right? Like in order for that strategy to work, he would have to be able to point to specific industries that are benefiting from the tariffs, um, make the case uh, that overall, even with the trade war, this is better than the status quo. And I just don't think that's where Americans are. I think that he, there is the potential here for Trump to get a pretty significant victory. Um, if he's able to renegotiate with China on on the terms that he's seeking to impose on them, um, that that I think would allow him to walk around for a couple of weeks and be like, "I told you I could do it. I did it." Um, and people would be like, "Wow, maybe being a, a, like a crazy jerk on Twitter all the time pays dividends in, in international diplomacy." But we really haven't seen that work Never yet. Happened. It hasn't worked with North Korea. Yeah. Um, it didn't work with with the NAFTA renegotiation, which was extremely modest and has not actually been put through any of the legislatures yet. So in a lot of ways, trade policy, except for the tariffs, is exactly where it was the day he took office. Um, It's just like we're paying more for certain goods. Um, And I don't think the average American consumer really understands how deeply dependent we are on a day-to-day basis on on things that are imported into this country, you know? Um, So, you know, where this goes, I I don't know, because Mm -hmm. nobody really knows what's happening inside those negotiations. Um, the person that he put in charge of them, Robert Lighthizer, uh, you know, I think is 
I don't agree with his economic philosophy necessarily, but I think he's pretty sharp. So he's not an idiot anyway, uh-huh. like, like most of the people that work for this. You know, like he has Jared Kushner doing Middle East peace and immigration at the same time. Uh, <laughs> yeah. He's like stupider than the stupidest person I've ever taught in my life. Yeah. And uh, so that's not going to work, yeah, right? But he, he put a professional in charge of these negotiations. So in that sense, um, you know, it, it may yet yield dividends. I think the market expects there to be some kind of an agreement. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if it was very much like the NAFTA negotiation, where you know we rename it, you know, yeah. like the America-China Trade Act, uh, and uh, you know you have some very modest adjustments to terms of trade, but but nothing, nothing really changes in terms of the status quo of our of our industrial economy. And so policy. then Donald Trump runs around the country going, "It's the greatest trade agreement ever, best in history, best in history." Everybody says it. All right. So the name of your book, "It's Time to Fight Dirty: How Democrats Can Build a Lasting Majority in American Politics." We just talked about in the abstract the issue of tariffs. Uh, in your humble opinion, what's the best political strategy that the Democrats should employ uh, <laughs> to this madness of Donald Trump suddenly ripping up trade agreements and slapping taxes on uh, Chinese goods? What do you think the best policy is? I mean, you know, it's interesting because Chuck Schumer has been pretty vocal about supporting a renegotiation of our terms of trade with China. Um, and so I think at the senior level of Democratic leadership, I think they believe that some change to this policy is both is both good mm-hmm. and wise and is the right is the right decision. Um, and that's a separate question of how we handle this politically, right? Politically, there should be ads running 24-7 right now in, in Iowa, Wisconsin, uh, Michigan, uh, all across the, um, you know, the, the agricultural areas of, of this country. They should have ads running, talking about the farmers who've lost their farms, talking about the damage these tariffs have done, uh, put pe- you know, get people, you know, human props, as we call them, get the human props up there, talking about how their lives have been destroyed, um, and you know, make some hay out of this, right? Like the, um, I, I think the, I think what Democrats are afraid of is, is leaning too hard into this issue and then having Trump succeed at, at getting it done. Um, and it, you know, they feel like they might be, you know, sort of left out in the cold if they if they make a big political issue out of this for 2020. Um, and then in like July 2020, Trump announces this new deal with China uh, and gets a, gets a bump in the polls. So I think that they mostly haven't wanted to talk about it that much, not just because of the politics, but because I think, you know, in, in the abstract, making some, you know, making some trade practices more fair with China is something I think we could probably all agree is, is good. Um, but I think that they should be using the I think they should be using the tariffs and the, dam- the direct damage of the tariffs that's being done to people in swing states. They should really be focusing on that. Wow, that's, uh, that last line you made uh, uh, said is very revealing. The, Repub- the Democrats are very afraid of what the impact could be down the road uh, if something goes right for Trump and the bump it'll cause you. This, will, this is a theme we'll come back to on many issues where the Democrats, instead of standing for something, mm-hmm. uh, are so reactive, they're worried about the consequence uh, if they go too hard on an issue and then it rebounds against them instead of standing for something. I don't even know if the Democrats have a position on trade. uh, Because yeah, yeah. And that's the problem. That's the problem, man. I think, you know, the the way that China is in the public imagination right now, do you remember in like the late 80s when people would like, were taking baseball bats and beating up Japanese cars? Yeah, Japan had that that position, yeah. It was that that movie... uh, about the, the the car manufacturing plant and the you know the Japanese were the villains. Um, that's kind of where we are with China right yeah. now, right? Um, and I think that people 
have a generally negative appraisal of China, even though you know their houses are stuffed with Chinese goods. Um, and so, again, the politics are really complicated on this one. It's, well, it's, uh, I'll it's throw tough. this at you. Uh, whenever I hear economists talk about uh, the trade imbalance, generally they talk about the price of labor and that uh, it, the price of labor is, quote unquote, cheaper uh, in China or Vietnam or uh, any of these countries that are uh, selling more goods than we are. Uh, like, and uh, so I'm saying, well, then the, uh, to me, the obvious solution is to drive up the price of labor in China, Vietnam. And so what the United States should be doing is encouraging the formation of unions in China and Vietnam. That is not a strategy I would ever expect Donald Trump to be espousing. But to me, it makes sense. Yeah, uh, no, absolutely. Um, and I think this is actually where um, where Biden has a little bit of an advantage because Biden, I, I don't know if he has the record to prove it, but Biden talks like he's the union guy. Um, and he's, he's one of the few Democrats who's been very vocal um, about his support for unions in general yeah. um, and, the, and the role that they play in a, in a functioning economy. I mean, interestingly, what would drive up the cost of labor in China is for China to get richer. <laughs> um, and China gets richer through these trade agreements. So there, there's, a, there's a sort of there's an iterative process here where China benefits from the trade, <clears throat> the middle class in China grows, uh, and the Chinese have to pay higher wages to their workers. Um, and, and I think the, the sort of the, the negative aspect of how we have the international trade system set up right now is that then at that point, the manufacturers would just move on mm -hmm. to the next country that has cheap labor. Um, and so I, I do think that there's a balance that can be struck there where we say we want to protect certain industries, uh, we don't want to lose all of our clothing manufacturers or all of our steel manufacturers. Um, we also don't want to make consumer goods more expensive for everybody. You know, how you package that up in a, in a message coming from democratic leaders, I, I, think, I, think the, I think the phrase fair trade works very well. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not sure that democratic leadership has, has a real clear idea of what that looks like. Um, and I agree that I don't think that unions are a big enough part of that vision. Uh, now let's move to the next big issue uh, of the day as we speak, uh, the abortion uh, laws that are being passed in states throughout the country. Uh, uh, Alabama is the most recent very restrictive abortion law uh, that would effectively um, make it a crime to uh, have an abortion. The doctor under the law that uh, the Senate of Alabama just passed would be facing jail time. Uh, 99 years 99 years Long the, time. it's interesting the woman they they're sparing women uh, the women punishment i presume this is all driven by polls that show that uh, there would be a far greater backlash to, if you start throwing women in jail for getting the abortion as opposed to throwing the doctor in jail uh for giving the abortion uh, although i don't see any clear di distinction if your attitude is that it's murder uh they're both parties to the murder, sure. uh, so they're not in. They're not consistent. Um, these are pretty radical, uh, to put it mildly, proposals, laws. They're not even proposals. These are pretty radical laws, uh, David. So, what's the strategy that the Republicans are following here? I'm not really seeing it. Uh, uh, so, to help us out here, sure. Um, what we're seeing right now is the sort of the fruition of an anti-abortion strategy, right? Like abortion abolitionism. Um, and it's almost completely divorced from political strategy for 2020. Um, what, what Republicans are doing, you know, I, I like to say this to people sometimes, <laughs> we're talking about the, the, the horrible situation this country is in right now, that we still have not felt all of the consequences uh, of November 8th, 2016. 
um, and sort of a the the victory of anti-abortion forces is one of those terrible consequences that we are now beginning to feel um, because Anthony Kennedy, who was the swing vote on the Supreme Court on these issues, is gone, uh, and he has been replaced by by an abortion hardliner named Brett Kavanaugh. And Brett Kavanaugh and Neil Gorsuch have spent their entire adult lives training um, for this moment to kill Roe v. Wade. And the idea that they would they would spend their entire lives <laughs> plotting to kill something and then at the last minute be like, oh, this will be too disruptive. I don't know if we can do this, uh, is, is absurd. So we're, we're likely to see some significant gutting of Roe v. Wade. I don't think that they will write the words, Roe v. Wade is vacated. Um, but we're, you know, if they uphold any of these laws, um, then then abortion, you know, essentially becomes illegal in at least half of American states. Mm -hmm. um, and so that has been the dream of of the of the anti-choice. You know, they call themselves pro-life. Uh, they don't care about what happens to you at all after you're born. Um, that's been the dream of the of the anti-choice movement for 40 years now. Um, they're right at the precipice of victory. They they smell victory. Um, and so they have a bunch of cookie cutter laws getting passed in all the different states. What they really want um, is for different uh, different district and appellate courts to disagree about whether those laws are legal. And then the Supreme Court, um, which which generally not always, but generally steps in when there's disagreements between the appellate courts, um, can say like, well, we have to settle whether a heartbeat law is, you know, the, the Sixth Circuit says it's, it's uh, unconstitutional. The Seventh Circuit has upheld it, and we have to make a decision because we can't have appellate courts issuing different decisions about the same issue. Mm -hmm. um, and so what's likely to happen, I think, I don't know whether it will happen this term, uh, although I'm starting to suspect it will. Not this term, I mean, like, you know, these cases will be decided in June 2020 of the election year. Um, they're going to consolidate all, the, all these heartbeat laws and the Alabama law together and make a decision about their constitutionality. Um, and what you know exactly what they're going to do i don't know um you'd have to get a a real in the weeds court watcher on the show um but i think that what's what's likely is that roe v wade will be overturned without them saying so mm -hmm. you know that they will uphold some ridiculous law um like they'll reverse themselves um on the on the texas case from a few years ago um where the supreme court said you, you know requiring clinics to to ha do all these expensive things that would bankrupt them <laughs> is interfering with uh with the constitutional right to, uh, to to abortion they'll reverse that um and then uh somebody on uh, do you know ian milheiser on think progress he had a great piece about this today um he said you know then they can just say like well abortion clinics need to be made out of solid gold um and hmm. and, and the supreme court would be like well it seems reasonable to me yeah time, you know um, <laughs> if that's no what you want to do take. it's local control right exactly yeah, yeah, yeah. jobs yeah that's so gold yeah gold manufacturers um <laughs> so I, I suspect that they'll find some clever way to, to 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 thread the needle here um make it possible for states to effectively ban abortion yeah um and and then the issue will be put before the voters all right so and then, we'll then, then we get to the political fallout <clears throat> And what, in your uh, opinion, is the political fallout to this? You know, I'm of the opinion that Republicans benefit the most when they keep the public's focus on these sort of like fabricated, um, you know, like a baby's born and then it's murdered, you know, like this kind of stuff or mm -hmm. what they call late term abortion. You know, when they keep the focus on things that I think um, where, where they're on pretty, even if they're making stuff up, <laughs> they're on pretty firm public opinion ground. And in other words, most people don't think that you should be able to 
you know, just for no particular reason, uh, uh, abort a fetus at 35 weeks, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so in as much as they are highlighting, you know, whatever happened in some clinic in, in, um, in New Jersey, some, where some outrage happened somewhere, they keep the focus on that. They pass, you know, um, newborn baby protection acts or whatever it is, you know, whatever nonsense is coming out of the Senate right now. Um, that they they're they're fine. I mean, I'm not I'm not saying what what, what they're doing is fine. It's outrageous. But they uh, from their standpoint, uh, politically speaking, they're on strong ground. They're on strong ground politically. Mm -hmm. I think when you get into um, having abortion made into a crime um, or made effectively illegal in even in rape or incest. Even, incest. Yeah, in Alabama, even even with rape or incest. So it's basically like, um, you know, Roy Moore could um, <clears throat> could rape a twelve year old, force her to carry the baby the term, and then get elected to the Senate in Alabama right now. Right? Like that's um, that's that's effectively where we are. Um, and that I don't think it's going to cost Republicans in Alabama um, because mm -hmm. Alabama is what it is. I would move to Jeff Bezos's colony on the moon before I move to Alabama, <laughs> right? But like. They're going to pass these laws in some swing states. Yeah, um, you know, the, the, Ohio, Ohio, uh, Georgia. You know, uh, there's a law on the books in North Carolina that, that the Democrats don't have the votes to overturn. Mm -hmm. um, and if those laws are, are upheld or substantially upheld by the Supreme Court, uh, I think that they are going to awaken right before the election uh, a, a sort of a, a sleeping giant <laughs> of uh, of Democrats and. The sort of the mushy middle of American public opinion about abortion, which actually, which is very complex. You know, public opinion on this issue is very complex. Um, but I think that, uh, that, that there's a clear majority um, for the for the legal framework of Roe v. Wade. Right? That is, le you know, legal uh, abortion up until a, a certain time, 24 weeks. Um, and I think most people are in favor of that, even if they're a little bit squeamish about it. And you know, like, well, I wouldn't do it, but I think that we should have the right. You know, like this kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and a public opinion about abortion has been incredibly stable. You know, Gallup does this polling going back 30, 40 years. Um, and you have, you know, you have a minority of people that are like, it should be legal up until the second the baby opens his eyes. And then you have a small minority of people that should be, it should be illegal all the time. Mm -hmm. And then you have um, the majority, uh, or at least a very strong plurality of people who say abortion should be legal under certain circumstances. Mm -hmm. right? And so when you pass laws that, makes that make abortion illegal under all circumstances, yeah you are like poking a big bear uh, of people who will suddenly decide that this is a litmus test issue for this election, um, who will realize that if Trump wins re-election, um, it's not just that you know, we're gonna, we're gonna substantially gut Roe v. Wade. If he gets another justice on the court, uh, if he replaces Ginsburg with another anti-abortion fanatic, right? Like they'll just vacate it, yeah. they, you know, they don't care. Um, and so you know, you're looking at millions of Americans who will suddenly realize that they could very soon be living in a Handmaid's Tale dystopia where women are forced to carry babies to term against their will. It's like reproductive slavery. Um, and I, I don't think that's a political winner for the Republicans. You know, um, I, I've, been, I've been wrong before. I mean, even political scientists, I don't think are that great about predicting the future or even correctly predicting the political consequences of, mm -hmm. this, of, of things. But I feel pretty certain um, that, you know, when it's a pretty clear pattern in American politics where when something is just being talked about, it's like, you know, people are like, well, whatever, maybe someday. Yeah. And then when they threaten to take it away from you, you're like, oh, wait, whoa. Yeah. You're going to take away my health care? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, so, so it's like, you know, parallel. Mm -hmm. until the day um, that Trump took office, the Affordable Care Act was underwater polling. 
Right? The day he took office, flip, you can look at the real clear politics chart. It just goes like this. Oh, sorry, reader. Uh, your listeners can't see this. Yeah. I'm doing something really interesting with my hands. <laughs> um, and, uh, you, you know, so suddenly yeah. the day that people were like, oh, wait, uh, I might be denied coverage again because I have cancer. They were like, oh, well, this sucks. Yeah. Um, and now I love the Affordable Care Act. It's the best law ever. Yeah. Um, and so I think there's a similar pattern here where I think, I think many women, many men, um, particularly younger people who, you know, were, were not alive for Roe v. Wade, which is probably the majority of the country at this point, just to just sort of assume that abortion is legal. Yeah. Um, and they've never taken the threat of it being overturned seriously because we, we, we just entered year 50 of a conservative Supreme Court and they haven't wow, overturned 50 years. 50 years, my whole life, man. Oh uh, my God, not you're right. Yeah. On this planet, <laughs> oh my a liberal God. Supreme Court. This is why I was so <laughs> sad on election night. So, so yeah. we were this close to yeah. the first liberal Supreme Court in my life. Yeah. Um, and so, so they've been, they've looked at a conservative Supreme Court for 50 years, refused to do this thing. Um, you know, you, you said you had like the the, the KCV plan, Planned Parenthood. It's like they they tinkered around the edges with it. Um, they've let states put into place, um, you know, 20 week abortion bans. Yeah. Uh, they've said you need this consent, that consent, the ultrasound, all these little obstacles to, to abortion that if you really are determined to get an abortion uh, in in most places in America, not I mean, there's a lot of places where it's effectively you can't, you know, this is not possible for people anymore. But in, in most and particularly people who vote. Yeah. <laughs> you know, if you want an abortion, you can probably get one. And now now you're faced with a, a situation um, where the illegality of abortion, like we have a, we may have a new legal framework in, in two dozen states that says like, you know, if you, if you get pregnant by accident, you know, you already have four kids and you're broke and you have two mortgages uh, and <laughs> freaking state legislature is gonna make me have this baby, Yeah. right? Um, I, I just think it's gonna create uh, an enormous backlash. Well, uh, my general sense of things is that the Republican strategist do not believe this will be a pivotal issue in a presidential election. Uh, they believe, and this is straight out of David Ferris's book, so I'm basically uh, <laughs> quoting you to you, paraphrasing you to you. They believe that thanks to the electoral map, uh, they can do whatever they want in this issue, and they've locked down, I forget how many states it is and how many votes it is. Uh, then you get into the swing states, like a Pennsylvania or a, a, a Ohio or a Michigan or a Wisconsin, and they think that uh, that swing vote that could tilt it from uh, Democrat to Republican or Republican to Democrat is c more concerned about other things, ultimately. Being the uh, the economy at the top of the list, yeah. so that they'll just say, ah, this is not that important. That's the calculus I believe they're making on this one. I think they're wrong. I think they're wrong too. Yeah, uh, I mean, I think that's the attitude that people would have if they kept pursuing this incremental strategy to chip away at Roe. You know, um, you know, move the week deadline up a couple of weeks. You know, pass a fifteen week ban or something. You know, because you can look at a 15-week ban and say, okay, this is terrible, obviously. But probably, like, most women realize they're pregnant by 15 weeks. Yeah. Um, maybe, you know, certainly not all, but, but many. Um, and so under most circumstances, I will still be able to get an abortion under this framework. Um, and that's just not the case with what they're doing. They are pursuing a really sort of radical, maximalist strategy. Um, they think that they have the political advantage. They think they have the votes on the Supreme Court. And they might. Right? They may very well have the votes on the Supreme Court to do this. Um, but I think that by doing so, they're like, you know, a few months before the 2020 election, they're going to put this really stark choice before the voters. You know, 
like you elect the Republican in this race, you elect Trump mm. to be the president, you are effectively casting a vote to make abortion illegal in many American states, including many American swing states. And uh, even in case of rape or incest, which- Yeah, uh, super draconian stuff. Yeah, and uh, so, all right, that, I think it's pretty obvious what the democratic strategy should be, even I know it, and I didn't write the book, uh, it's time to fight dirty, hammer hard on this issue and let people know about it and not give up at all. Yeah, absolutely, and they should be, anywhere where Democrats control state governments, um, they should be already be putting protections for abortion into place um, under the Roe v. Wade framework. Right? And, that's, so, and that's what we've done actually here in Illinois. Yeah. I gotta give you Illinois yeah. credit on, on that front. All right, let's uh, move on to foreign policy. Uh, something we very rarely uh, talk about on the show or mostly uh, deal with uh, economic, uh, social policies and state politics and local politics. But right now, as I speak, uh, Donald Trump uh, is talking about uh, sending troops to Iran. I cannot believe he would do something this stupid. Uh, and uh, But I think uh, the number that you quoted when you came in was about 125,000 troops. I think you said something like that. Yeah, um, 120. Yeah. Please tell me, David, that this is just something that popped off the top of his head or, or John Bolton's head as one of his chief foreign policy strategists. Please tell me that this is not a reality. I wish I could tell you that. Um, but you know, despite... <laughs> candidate Trump's insistence that starting Middle East wars was the stupidest thing that we've ever done and that he was against the Iraq war, although it's a lie. Um, and uh, and every, you know, basically like I think a 95% consensus in this country that the Iraq war was a disaster of epic proportions that has like destroyed an entire generation's uh, economic life in addition to killing several hundred thousand people for no particular reason. Um, in spite of all that, um, President Trump hates Iran. Um, he, you know, he drank the Republican Kool-Aid about the Iran deal during, you know, even while it was being signed, and then during the campaign promised to tear it up on day one. He didn't do it on day one, but he did it. Um, he did it last year. And when he did that, he set off a, a, a sort of a, a, a chain of events that, that could very well lead us to a, to a military conflict with Iran. Um, and it's idiotic. You know, um, we, had, we had a good agreement with Iran. Iran was abiding by it. Uh, Republicans may have not liked the fact that it had a sunset clause, um, but that you know that would be a decade in the future, and we wouldn't have to be worrying about this right now. Um, instead, the administration decided to precipitate this idiotic conflict with Iran, um, to ratchet up tensions, um, to treat Iranian foreign behavior uh, as like somehow different than Saudi behavior, which is like basically identical to, um, and to, you know to to, to to bracket Iran's like Iran's not a normal country. We have to bring them to heel, um, and it's just it's like remarkable hubris to me to 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 believe that after the last fifteen years of uh, of American history that we can do that, and I'm I'm concerned that we are careening towards a conflict with Iran. Um, mm. When when Trump made John Bolton his national security advisor, um, he invited into his inner circle and you know a person that gives him a lot of advice, um, someone who's who's insane who's like a, a, like a bloodthirsty uh, warmonger. Um, one of the craziest people, uh, I think, of all the people that have been appointed to, to important positions in the Trump administration, the one that bothered me the most was John Bolton. Mm. Um, because John Bolton still thinks the Iraq war was a good idea. Uh, John Bolton wanted to invade Iran uh, in the early 2000s. He thought that was a good idea. Like they had this, you know, that was like, first Iraq, then Iran, then Syria, we're gonna roll through the whole region, just overthrowing governments left and right. Can't, what could go wrong? Yeah. Right? 
Um, and, and so we are provoking this crisis in the absence of, of any provocation coming from Iran. Um, it's, it's just it's just crazy. You know, Iran does some stuff in the region that, that we don't like. You know, like they're supporting one side in the in the Yemeni civil war. Um, you know, they're invo they're involved in Syria. It's, they're funding Hezbollah, which they've been doing for you know uh, almost as long as I've been alive. So it's not like that's new. Um, and uh, the U.S. seems to be throwing down this gauntlet that says, um, if you restart your you know if you ramp up your nuclear activities, which Iran has now promised to do. Um, or if you attack American forces, then we're, you know, that's why these troops are being sent to the region. Mm -hmm. And it, it's, it's just, you're creating, you're creating this tripwire um, that we're, I, I'm pretty sure that Iran is gonna walk over um, because we tore up the deal a year ago. Yeah. Um, and they've been observing it for, for a year in the absence of any cooperation from us, right? They're no longer getting any economic benefits out of this deal. Um, and we're threatening them with invasion. And if there's like one thing that we know from the study of international politics, the one thing that makes you invasion proof is a nuclear weapon. Um, so from a rational standpoint, uh, you, you have this American president acting like a maniac. Uh, he's appointed the biggest maniac in the entire country to run his <laughs> Iran policy. Oh, you know, you're threatening to send 120,000 troops to Iran. If you're the Iranian leadership right now, you know, I, the conversation would go like this, like, what do we need to do? Yeah. Uh, we need a nuclear weapon as soon as possible, yeah. like yesterday. Make it happen. You know, open up the facilities, start enriching the uranium. You know, get those designs back online. Um, and you know, these these estimates are notoriously uh, slippery. But before we signed the deal, I mean, I think I think the consensus was Iran was you know a year or two away from a nuclear weapon, mm -hmm. right? So it's not like they could go build one tomorrow morning. <laughs> um, but if they decide to, to 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 build, you know, the, you know, to to restart these underground facilities or build new ones, you know, they could probably have a nuclear weapon in a year or two. Uh, and the real question is like, what are we going to do about it? Yeah. Um, are we going to start bombing Iran? What happens when we bomb Iran? I don't think these idiots have thought through any of this. Like Iran could take a, a, a fleet of tankers, sink them in the Strait of Hormuz, and bring global oil prices, you know, like double them overnight. Um, and it might take us months to clear that out of the out of the straits. Um, they could unleash their proxies on us in Iraq. Um, they could create all sorts of mayhem in Iraq that would be very damaging. Um, and you know that's just the beginning, right? Um, it's so it's like I, I don't know what I don't know what the plan is in Washington because um, like everything that you know they they make these wild threats, but nothing seems written down um, for us to see. But I don't know whether they plan to try to decapitate the Iranian leadership or something. I don't know whether they're planning an invasion of Iran, which I can't even believe they would be that stupid. Um, but it's you know every time I say that sentence over the last three years, it's like they do the thing that yeah. I thought was too stupid to do, um, and then here we are, right? Yeah, no, it, it's um, it's very sobering, and um, I have to believe just to get me through the day uh, that this is just blowing smoke and steam. And Trump does this so often, where he gets in these frame of minds, these moods. Like maybe he's just doing this because he wants to somehow or other distinguish himself from the Democrats. Like I'm tough, they're not. And imagine Joe Biden handling this. Good God, you know. Yeah. And uh, well, it's like I can't imagine Joe Biden handling this because he did, and we had an agreement, and it was fine. <laughs> yeah. Right. And now it's like yeah. now we're threatening to like blow up the world for no reason. All right. So now we get to Democratic strategies. Uh, generally, the Democrats have not. <laughs> Uh, been pillars of courage uh, when it comes to dealing with Republican and uh, presidents who are uh, embarking on uh, all kinds of mayhem around the world. Uh, they're always afraid, uh, traditionally they've been afraid uh, that they would look weak 
uh, which is why I suspect that Donald Trump is doing this. So what do you suggest as a strategy that the Democrats should follow? Well, I mean, I think that they need to be they need to make their opposition to this very clear, you know, um, and I, I think that the Democratic position on this is pretty clear, right? Like we had a deal. It, it was working um, and we need to, you know, we need to get back into the deal. Mm -hmm. we, need, we need to um, have the United States resume its obligations under the under the joint uh, under the JCPOA um, and that that will sort of reduce tensions. Mm -hmm. right? Like Democrats and Republicans are fairly unified. Um, on their opposition to, to certain Iranian foreign policy practices, right? Like, you're not going to find anybody in Congress that's like, you know, happy that that Iran is funding Hezbollah. You're not going to find anybody in the American Congress that that wants to take, um, the, you know, the Iranian side in the Yemeni civil war. <laughs> um, what you will find is people who 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 should be saying um, that this will have very destructive uh, aftershocks. Mm -hmm. right? Like, you may think that you can, you know, you can bomb a couple of Iranian nuclear facilities and walk away. Um, but we could trigger a much broader conflict. Um, and so I think they need to be out in the public. You know, I'm, we've been talking about, there's only so much stuff you can do in public at once, right? But it's like the Trump administration is this like massive nonstop, like 15 front crisis. Um, and <laughs> yeah. so I think I think Democrats get a lot of flack with, well, you should be talking about this more. And it's like, well, I mean, they are, right? Like people yeah. are, you know, they're senior Democrats on Twitter being like, well, this is crazy. Why are they doing this? Yeah. Um, and so the, the, the reality is the president has this like one way bullhorn talk to all of us. Yes, he and, does. And there's no... There's no Democrat that has that same standing. That's right. Um, and so I think that the party needs to make its opposition to this adventurism clear. They need to offer voters a clear alternative, which does exist, which is the Iran deal, which was popular. Um, and, and, you know, God forbid, if hostilities do start, then, then House Democrats need to start talking about the War Powers Act, right? Which is that the president needs authorization um, uh, after, after 60 days. Um, if, if Congress has not given him the authorization for the use of military force, which he does not have yeah. to attack Iran. Like there's no plausible interpretation of either uh, uh, the Iraq war authorization or, or the Afghanistan authorization that would legitimize um, attacking Iran out of thin blue air, you know? All right, uh, this is uh, pretty frightening stuff. So let's close with something that's a little lighter. Yeah. Uh, political gamesmanship. Joe Biden. Uh, Joe Biden. <laughs> and uh, this delightful article, which I cannot stop citing, uh, that's in today's New York Times. Uh, this is Wednesday, as I'm saying this. Uh, so this will be a week old. But this is an article with the New York Times. Uh, there are two intrepid reporters started interviewing Republican strategists on whether they thought it was a good idea that Donald Trump was uh, sniping at Joe Biden with his Twitter attacks, including this one. I'll just read this mm -hmm. one uh, Trump tweet about Donald, about Joe Biden. Quote, China is dreaming, and that's capital D-R-E-A-M, all caps, that sleepy Joe Biden, they already gave him a nickname, mm -hmm. or any of the others gets elected, or any of the others, just, or any of the any of them gets elected in 2020. This guy is actually kind of funny in his own demented way. Uh, gets elected in 2020. They love ripping off America. All right, so he's already, he's really, Joe Biden has clearly gotten under his skin. Mm -hmm. uh, and, um, uh, and so the the uh, advice that these Republican strategists are giving Donald Trump uh, in the New York Times is that he should leave Joe Biden alone uh, because attacking Joe Biden just makes Joe Biden more popular with Democrats. And Joe Biden's the hardest uh, to beat. And here's a quote from a Republican strategist, quote, I'm I am now quoting a Republican strategist who allowed himself to be quoted in the New York Times. 
Bernie Sanders is the perfect guy for us. He looks like the professor out of Back to the Future and is a hardcore socialist. All right. I, I'm, re- <laughs> I'm reading this thing it's out. It's the Libyans, Marty. It's the Libyans. <laughs> That's David Ferris, Back to the Future imitation. So here's here's my question: Is this political gamesmanship? Is this jujitsu? Are they trying to get the Democrats uh, to really believe that the polls show that Joe Biden's ahead, or do they want to seek? They have a secret plan to get Democrats to fall in line and nominate Joe Biden, knowing that he's the weakest candidate. What do you think, David? I think. (laughs) (laughs) I generally think that any theory of Trump behavior. That involves like thirteen-dimensional chess. You know, <laughs> that we're being like, you know, we're being we're being outmaneuvered by this genius strategy is probably wrong. Okay, I think that what's happening here is that the president wakes up in the morning, tweets whatever he wants from <laughs> from the bathroom, uh, comes up with stupid like sleepy Joe Biden. What is that? Yeah, like I would kill for a sleepy president. You know, <laughs> like please, please, like go to sleep. Shut up. You know. <laughs> I would kill for a president just to like, shut up half the day. Sleepy Joe. Great. Sleepy Joe. Oh, can't have a sleepy president. That would be so terrible. You fall asleep during negotiations. So it's, it's idiotic. Um, I don't think that the president is deliberately um, lifting Biden up. I don't think that's what's happening here. Um, I think that the president, uh, one of the few things he pays attention to in all the entire world and any kind of detail is polls. Yeah. Um, and he sees Biden kicking his butt. And, and not just nationally, but but across all these uh, Midwest swing states in particular, you know, there's polling in that article and says Trump is, is would lose to Biden in all the key swing states yeah. that would deliver 270. Um, and so he's scared of him yeah. um, and he's trying to define him. I, the interesting thing to me is, you know, Republican strategists have to decide who it is that they want to face. Um, if they do want to face Joe Biden, you know, if they think that, that Biden is beatable, that, that his poll numbers would collapse under any kind of scrutiny, um, then, then it's not the stupidest strategy in the world to go after him right now. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly, uh, the Biden camp is enjoying the attention, right? It's, uh, they think it's inflating his numbers in the primary. Uh, if all the president is talking about is Biden, then Democratic primary voters will be like, well, okay, you know, sounds good. Biden it is, you know. And so you have to separate out, you know, the effect on the Democratic primary versus the effect on the general election. And one thing that we do know, I think, is that it it benefits um, the incumbent to try to 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 try to define the challenger early. Yeah. You know, so if Trump was coming out with a with a unified any kind of coherent message about what's wrong with Joe Biden, other than that, he's sleepy, um, then then it might be kind of clever. Right. Because like if he can hang a label on Joe Biden right now. Uh, you know, that he's corrupt or, or, you know, whatever it is, the avenue that they're going to go after him with. I suspect it'll be, um, you know, like, how did Hunter Biden get this job in Ukraine? And like, it's just another fat cat, you know, like the sort of the corrupt playbook that they used against Hillary, which I, I don't think would be useless. Um, if that's what they want, then, then, you know, I, am I really going to give them advice right now? Um, <laughs> if that's what they want, then they need to have, the, they need to give, to give the president a, a, a coherent message <laughs> to attack Joe Biden yeah. with, not just like, he's soft on China. Like, uh, like he was the vice president. You yeah. know, like, he's, people are not going to buy that. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, there's just, there's a lot going on here. But I, I definitely don't think 
that Donald Trump has a secret plan okay. to elevate Joe Biden and then knock him down. <laughs> you know, I don't think that's what's happening. Uh, it was a very entertaining article, nonetheless, where they uh, <laughs> yeah. all these Republicans weighing in on uh, what he should do, and then the whole thing about Bernie uh, being the Back to the Future candidate. Yeah, Hard poor course. professors too. Everybody's always, you know, when you want to say something bad about a presidential candidate, you call them professorial. Yeah, and I'm like, you know, I'm standing, <laughs> I'm standing right here. You know, I'm standing right I didn't here. Think of that. That's so mean. Yeah, that That's is so horrible. People like their professors, you know. Uh, what the hell? Particularly the absent-minded one. Yeah. Uh, David Ferris is indeed a professor at Roosevelt University, political scientist. He's the author of "It's Time to Fight Dirty: How Democrats Can Build a Lasting Majority in American Politics." It's always a blast talking politics with David, and uh, so we'll bring you back next month and see what the world looks like then. All right. I'm looking forward to it. It's always a good time to be here, Ben. Thank so, you. All right. Very good. That's it for today, everybody.